Hey, Brad, how are you? Gee, you don't sound too excited, George. It's been a couple of weeks you've had off. Oh man, I'm, I'm, I've got to say, I've got to say, the highlight of my couple of weeks has got to be this, uh, the, the, the stint of doing float your boat episodes with you, Brett. Of course it is. I know it's just a bit. How could flat. it not be? It's a bit flat and monotonous in the in the uh, post-apocalyptic COVID zombie apocalypse kind of period. Did I repeat apocalypse twice? I did, didn't I? Yeah, but that's all right. You can say it as many times as you like. I remember my neighbour downstairs, the, when I used to live in Bondi, the mm. downstairs neighbour, the first words she taught, the first words that Billy ever spoke was, the first mm. word was mm. Armageddon. Armageddon. And the downstairs neighbour taught her that. She was yeah. a very funny, quirky was she a, sort of chick. Uh-huh. Was she a conspiracy theorist and a, and a doomsdayer? No, no, no. Was no. her favourite word? No, no. She was just as mad as a cut snake. Uh, okay, and and uh, well, we're talking about mad as cut snakes. I, I think there's a there's quite a lot of um, uh, history of mad and cut snake Australians, uh, and 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 today we actually have a pretty amazing fellow in the sense that he 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 must spend all his time researching the most obscure listings in the National Archives. Yes, his name is Michael Adams. Yes, and he, and he has a podcast called Forgotten Australia and, and, and a website. What was that? What, what was that? I forgot. You forget already? Yeah. Forgotten Australia. Think, think about my, uh, uh, our mate Michael. Is it, um, Let's not talk about his thing. Yeah. <laughs> No, let me talk about Michael being an author. And he's also an all-nighters tragic fan. So he must be a tragic, good guy. A tragic all-nighters fan. So he must be a really good guy. Oh uh, yeah. Well, he, look, he's he's written he's written the uh the amazing story of a forgotten Hollywood star called Mary Maguire. Did you know Mary Maguire? She was well known as Australia's sweetheart in the 30s. But no one knows her today. Was she the grandmother of uh, what was that movie that Tom <laughs> Tom Cruise did? Jerry Mc... Show no. me the money. No, no. She must be. She must have been a friend of Doris, though. You know your mate Doris, the Doris. Doris, Doris at the Hollywood Hotel. Yeah, she would have been your. She would have been her friend. Surely they would have had a couple of pints together. Not pints. Um, um, ponies together. Ponies. So. Um, Further Where are you ado, going with this? I have no idea. I'm meandering because I'm, I'm trying to get my head back into the entertainment space when it's been, when it's been, when I've been beating my brains against a, a brick wall, just trying to, just trying to get some life into me because of COVID. Is that right? Yeah. Are you, you're, uh, you're in that um, play Death of a Salesman at the moment, aren't you? Oh, uh, yeah. You know, it's not, a, I guess it's not a good time to be in sales. <laughs> <laughs> probably not <laughs> probably not probably not so so anyway anyway without further ado we're going to get michael on i do let's I go do. let's go Yes, 
Welcome to the Float Your Boat podcast about how everyday people created their road to success. The highs, the lows, pitfalls and potholes and how they overcame it all. And now, here are your hosts. Here we have Michael. We, we could just get started since we're... We're already recording. We've already, we've already, we've You've already, already done it. We've we already, have, we've already well, done we've, it. We're, well, we've we've gone through your prolific profile. Oh my god! And um, there's no end, Michael. You got there to, is no end. You got to the Pornhub stuff as well. <laughs> that, that's plastered all over the internet, mate. <laughs> so that'll never go. Excellent. Because you know they're. That's um, it was quite entertaining too, Michael. <laughs> anyway, the chicken didn't think so, but you know what? <laughs> but the gaff tape held up. <laughs> oh, you you are disgusting, Brett. I think this is a this is a family podcast. Oh, Good, yes, yeah. sorry, not, sorry, not yes. really. I can not edit really. all this out, but I won't. <laughs> As you hey, well Mike, know, George. Hey, hey, hey Michael. Hey, Michael. Thank you. Thank you for giving up your precious time because in between the thousand and one activities that you get up to, I don't know how you how you hold it together. I do stay pretty busy. Um, it's been a real boon in the COVID time, I can tell you, because, you know, I haven't had as much time to doom scroll on Twitter as I might otherwise because I've been so flat out. Um, yeah, I guess it's just, yeah, enjoying what you do, I guess. I really enjoy it. So, it seldom feels like a job. It does feel like work, but it's enjoyable. So, yeah. Well, Michael, Michael, um, you know, I, I came across you particularly because you, of your podcast, which is uh, Forgotten Australia. And I thought, I just assumed that you would have had a bank of researchers, you know, vir- like vi- vigorously working away on, on the internet, trying to find the most obscure references to things that happened in <laughs> Australia. Um, I'm getting a sense that you're it, and am, um, yeah. And again, given everything else that we're going to talk about and everything else that you're up to, how do you how do you find the time? Um, I don't know. Like, I don't. I, I was up, for instance, until one thirty this morning doing the next episode of Forgotten Australia, and I'm doing another one now called Australia on This Day, which is, yep. as it sounds, a daily podcast. But um, I've managed it reasonably well. I have a a big library of books that I've uh, assembled over, you know, 25 years of op shopping and secondhand book shopping, which I can refer to, which is handy. Uh, things like Trove for old newspapers in terms of researching those, that's right at your fingertips. And I kind of know how to navigate those things. And I've worked as a writer for like 30 plus years now and working as a magazine journalist and a TV writer, mm. you've got to be quick. You can't sort of, you know, just labour over things forever. Mm. Um, so I guess that helps in terms of being able to write reasonably quickly. And I guess, you know, doing it, I've done some, something like I think 80 episodes of Forgotten Australia now and I'm coming up on 45, I think, of Australia on this day. And you kind of develop a voice. So it's it's yeah. almost like talking <clears throat> through your fingertips and then, you know, you, yeah. you have to record it and the rest of it. So, yeah, yeah. busy but fun. Yeah, all the hallmarks of a misspent youth, I think. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So I'll make that's it. I, I, I stuffed around for so many years. I'm making up for it now. So, Michael, let let's uh, go backwards to when you yeah. were. Where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, the western suburbs of Sydney. 
So Blacktown mm-hmm. back then was, you know, pilloried for being Westies, etc. I mm. guess the equivalent these days is Bogan. Mm-hmm. Um, so I grew up there, went to St. Pat's Patrician Brothers uh, High School, which specialised in football players and pedophile uh, Catholic brothers. Mm. How'd you go with that? I was very lucky, though we did have – my family was uh, quite Catholic and we did have uh, priests and brothers over for dinner and one of those brothers was subsequently arrested, charged and convicted and I think did about five years for child sexual abuse. Oh, wow. So I don't know what he was expecting to get after the meatloaf at our place. But, uh, <laughs> I was very, really, really – I was really fortunate uh, that, that, you know, some of the other, other – boys who went to the school weren't so fortunate. Uh, and then after that, I went to another Catholic high school and then I uh, liberated myself, ran away from home when I was 16, went and lived in Coffs Harbour for six months in, in a caravan with my former religion teacher's daughter. Well, oh, as you would. You ran, <laughs> off, you ran off with the preacher's daughter. <laughs> oh. close, close to it. Religion, oh. teacher, religion teacher's daughter, yeah. Close oh, cl- classic, classic. How religious was she? Not at all. <laughs> but there was a lot of religious experiences. We love those those uh, those memories. <laughs> we worked in a uh, we worked in an ice cream store in Coffs Harbour for six months at three dollars an hour. Lived in a caravan for two months and then in a in a weatherboard share house and yeah, smoked a lot of dope and hung out. It was it was pretty cool actually. Then came back and you know all of my mates were finishing their HSC and I'm uh, I'm not so. So yeah. it was the first time you discovered your big banana, really. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, that's where you had your <laughs> you took her for a romantic picture. Touche. <laughs> Sorry, I digress. Not at all. That's spot on. Uh, uh, they, they, said, they, they, they might have renamed it the modest banana. <laughs> <laughs> Well, as long as it wasn't yellow. <laughs> it's true, exactly. Oh, oh, look, look, for any for any of our non-Australian listeners, we have to explain what that is, right? <laughs> you know, let's, let's, just, let's just, like, cover off on that before we move on, shall we? Well, Australia has a lot of big things, big, big in towns. Big roadside attractions, yes. You know, the big, you know, merino and the big lobster. And yeah, in Coffs Harbour, they've got the big banana. yeah. Which is massive, and 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 it's hard to believe that people drive for hundreds of miles just to take a snappy in front of a stupid big banana on the side of the road. I tell anyway. you what, though, there is a there is a memoir or a podcast in that or a documentary. Just it tripping around to all of those nutty things would be it'd be a lot of fun. Not you'd be what, doing it at the moment. Wasn't it? Wasn't it what, weren't all those big things due to the madness of a couple of Polish brothers in the 50s that just went around Australia putting the, erecting these um, icons of the local region? I do not know. That's, yeah. Is that there right? There you go. That, that's oh, we got, we got, I'll into that. Tomorrow <laughs> yeah, on on this day, the 50th anniversary of the Big Banana. Yeah, I just remember someone telling me about these mythical Bogdan brothers that, <laughs> that just travelled the country in the 50s putting these up. I'm going to look into it. I reckon yeah. it's a good story. Yeah, it would it's be It is very story. weird. And, it is weird. And they all look much bigger when you're a kid because I remember oh, the big okay. banana was huge when I was a kid and the last time I drove past it I thought, where is that effing <laughs> thing? It was like, oh, there it is. Jesus. 
That's been a yeah. That's, that's been that's a metaphor been. for that's been a metaphor for Brett's life actually. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. Yes, it's about you, Michael, not about us. I'm so, happy to talk about big bananas for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> My jam, Phillips. <laughs> so, so, uh, so George got onto Forgotten Australia because I forwarded I, I forwarded him an episode about uh, the Spanish flu, which I'd mm. listened to. Mm. And since we're in these crazy, as George put it, apocalyptic times, it, it was yeah. I mean. Was that your? Was that the first episode you? It was, did? yeah. It was the first one. I did it in November, twenty eighteen, which was the hundredth, hundredth anniversary of the death of one of the nurses who was on the very first front line against the flu at Sydney's North Head Quarantine Station. Yeah, and I stumbled. I, it was it was a, quite interesting. I wrote a book uh, a couple of years back about an Australian actress called Mary Maguire, and she was born in February nineteen nineteen. And researching her birth. She was born at the height of the Spanish flu and I kind of got interested in it. I could only deal with it sort of in a paragraph in the book, but I was like, why don't I not know about this? Why don't any of us know about this? Mm. And that's, that's what led to that first episode. And then, uh, of course, um, you know, cut to a year and a bit later and so much of it sort of uh, was being repeated. It was quite staggering. Um, like I actually tweeted, I think, uh, probably about mm, March, April, about what happened in the Spanish flu with the second wave was when re- re- relaxed, mm. when things were relaxed, mm. uh, the second wave just, you know, the, the, in, in Sydney, they, I think it was the end of March, 1919, the Sun newspaper was like, you know, we've got this thing beaten. It was headline news. Mm. Yay. Everybody breathes a sigh of relief. And within, you know, a week, the cases had jumped back up. And then within a month or two, Australia hit its highest, you know, hundred people dying a day sort of thing. So I, I it was, quite disturbing in the sense that you know those lessons were there they're in the podcast i mean i don't claim to have discovered anything new i mean we but we should have actually learned this lesson from what happened in australia a century ago and we didn't well it's remarkable because i came across the the uh, the spanish flu reading reading military history books um yeah. but but all the references were in europe so, yep. so I didn't. I didn't actually think it became. Uh, it was a global pandemic, and what's remarkable is that we completely like no one knows. I mean, hardly anyone knows of what Australians went through back then. You're talking about a hundred people dying a day. Yeah. In a population base of around five million people, that's nice. that. That's um, well, it's almost more than more more than the soldiers killed on a daily basis during World War One. I, I think yeah. for Australian soldiers. So. So it was crazy. The toll was 15,000 Australia-wide in the space of maybe about eight, nine months. And I think we lost 60,000 soldiers in the space of four years in the war. So sort of, you know, per annum, it was about the same amount of people who died. And, yeah, but, you know, as opposed to World War I, we just collectively forgot about it. I think it was probably too difficult to deal with and, yeah, we, we wanted to forget and move on. So it kind of got pushed out of push out a popular consciousness to a large extent. It's amazing how we don't learn by our mistakes, really. You know, it is. I did a recent one uh, a few weeks back on the bubonic plague in Sydney in 1900. I didn't know and we had one. We did. Uh, it killed 303 people. Uh, it went for about eight months. And again, 
a lot of the lessons and a lot of the sort of experiences are uncanny in the way that they've been echoed 120 years later from, you know, conspiracy theories that, you know, the, the bubonic plague had come to Australia from secret experiments in an Adelaide hospital and then, you know, ideas that, you know, you could catch it from, you know, uh, a dirty dishcloth or, you know, uh, it floating through the air, this great uncertainty about what actually transmitted it, even though in the past few years they had actually nailed it as being plague, f plague rat fleas, but no one believed it. Like the chief medical officer in New South Wales from January 1 was saying, it, it's coming, it's now in, um, uh, where was it? It was in, it was in um, Vanuatu. So the ships from Vanuatu to Sydney only took about four days and that was enough time that someone with it or a plague rat with it could get to Australia, get to Sydney without dying. Mm. So he was saying, you know, it's coming, it's going to be spread by plague rat, uh, plague fleas and all the newspapers either ignored it or said, you know, what's going, to, what's going to cause the outbreak is, you know, filthy conditions of Chinese immigrants around the key. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, it was you know that, that kind of you know China virus kind of vibe, and it ended up. But there, but there were ten Chinese people who died out of three hundred and three, mm. and the epidemic began in uh, the waterfront areas where, which were you know really badly maintained. There were lots of rats, and of course there were lots of fleas. Yeah. Um, but the science, it took a long time for people to actually accept it, and even after the plague, when this guy uh, made his um, report to the colonial government, even then they tried to reject it. And he was like, no, guys, listen, it's fleas. You know, we have to enact quarantine procedures. We have to monitor shipping. We have to respond to outbreaks quickly. But then there were another dozen outbreaks in the next 10 years and killed another sort of, you know, 1,200 people. So, yeah, again, that one's a bit more better known than the Spanish flu uh, because of those famous images of dudes in the rocks with piles of dead rats. Yeah. Um, again, yeah. relatively unknown. And a lot of the lessons then are still applicable today. Now, Michael, um, you know, that is amazing. I mean, as a journalist, you're probably best qualified to answer this question. Why is it every every dickhead comes out with a conspiracy theory about during these times? Like, you know, it, 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 at the moment, I think um, I think uh, COVID's being caused by 5G, yeah? <laughs> of course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Look, I have, to confess, I have to confess, in the late 80s and early 90s, I was right into conspiracy theories, you know, New World Order and reading about the Illuminati and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's seductive because it, it provides answers to otherwise sort of, you know, um, mysterious events. Like, you know, we don't know exactly where COVID came from, but conspiracy theorists can tell us it's you know, aliens, it's the Freemasons, it's, you know, George Soros, it's 5G, whatever it is. And these that's the thing, though, the conspiracy theories just populate the, the consciousness so quickly. It's incredible. Like I remember distinctly uh, when Princess Diana was injured in the car crash, I was hung over at my sister-in-law's, future sister-in-law's engagement party. And we woke up and it was on the radio that Diana had been in a car crash. We were driving back to Sydney. It was only about 40 minutes from sort of out Dural Way. And in the car on the radio, the news came through, she was dead. Yep. I thought, I wonder if there's a conspiracy theory. I got on the internet in 19, this is 1997, and there was the first conspiracy theory by the time I got back to my house in Glebe. So within 40 minutes, and it came from Australia, so within 40 minutes someone had managed to come up with, you know, inside information that she'd been murdered or whatever it was in the tunnel. So I think some of these people are idiots. A lot of them are idiots. A lot of them are bad actors. 
And I guess Facebook just, you know, promulgates stuff and, and Twitter and the rest of it just allows this stuff to act like a contagion. And I guess yeah. it is seductive to think that, you know, there are these mysterious forces at work because that actually reassures us that there is some order underlying these events as opposed to just Just randomness. Yeah. Mm. So, no. and, and it's amazing that the internet uh, has given voice to people who otherwise would have remained uh, voiceless. <laughs> well, that's and and yeah, here we are. That's right. Everyone has a theory. Yeah, you know, we've also got DoFi like Trump, you know, in the White House amplifying this stuff and, you know, whether he believes it or not, he's more than willing to use it for his own ends. Like, you know, his comments yesterday on QAnon saying, most ridiculously, I haven't heard anything about this, which is obviously bullshit, but then going, well, if they, you know, if they like me, I think they're okay and they're patriots. I mean, you know, but these conspiracy theories, they do go back, you know, to the 1700s where, you know, uh, there was actually an Illuminati and it was, you know, it's it, it suppression. It was sort of a, 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 a rationalist society and it was suppressed by the first ever secret police. Um, from memory, I think that was in, in France. But, you know, then, you know, people like Henry Ford, uh, you know, promulgated the protocols of the elders of Zion because um, Ford was a massive anti-Semite and he paid to have this translated into English, this scurrilous czarist uh, fabrication about, you know, the Jewish conspiracy. Yep. Henry Ford, you know, the, uh, the the man who probably did more than anyone else for industrialization in the 20th century also promoted the protocols of the elders of Zion around the world. And, you know, that is how Hitler came to be you know those those texts circulated through germany in the depression so you know conspiracy theories have a fairly rich history and i i, I guess we're just seeing the latest iteration of them that's what they've told me to say i can't tell you the actual can't tell you the actual truth they 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 told you they they, <laughs> they are actually my dogs who communicate to me Thanks, right. son of Sam. The mind waves, that's right. I, I, I'm the sequel, I'm the son of the son of Sam. Grandson, grandson of Sam. Grandson of Sam. <laughs> so so uh, jumping back to uh, your early days, like so after Coffs Harbour, what, what happened? Where did you go back? Uh, back I worked for Roadshow Home Video uh, when I was about 17, so I had a job-type job in the city, which was pretty cool. Um worked with four women who were chain smokers in an office probably about 10 metres by 10 metres when we didn't open the window. So, wow, passive smoking was incredible. Um, then I went back to um, went back to uh, TAFE and did HSC and then I went to Melbourne and got into a journalism course at RMIT, mm. which I then did one year of, deferred travel, went back to deferred, went back to and dropped out. So I didn't finish um, and then I came back to Sydney after a brief sojourn as a would-be war correspondent in uh, Cambodia during wow. the Khmer Rouge time. Which, uh, wow. Are you, are you that old? <laughs> Khmer, <laughs> the Khmer Rouge, I am. It, it's the moisturising regime. Uh, <laughs> you, don't see the sun. you don't see the sun, obviously. Your skin is <laughs> lily white. It's good on um, you. Well, the Illuminati don't let me out. <laughs> the, um, no, well, the Khmer Rouge was still operating in 1994. Remember, they kidnapped the Australian hostage and British and French hostages. Yes. Uh, so yes. I was there between the discovery of the first set being dead and the the second set were still in captivity and would later be 
discovered to have been killed. So I was there at that time and I was down in the Khmer Rouge held area or Khmer Rouge harassed area. It was pretty, uh, it was pretty freaky actually. Well, where were you? Uh, I mean, where were you holed up in the um, the Western uh, Western Hotel, um, like you know the, the Hilton, like uh, like a lot of journo's, they didn't venture out past the uh, past the walls of the five star hotel. No, I went to a place called Kampot, which was where the uh, Cambodian soldiers were based or based out of to surround the area where the hostages were and where the negotiators were. And by the time I got there, the Western press had kind of gotten bored of the story. So I was the only reporter there uh, and I had no money because I was a freelancer and freelancers never get paid on time. So I ended up staying with a Cambodian family, a Khmer family for five days. And each night this guy, because he was a government employee, he was press ganged into going out and patrolling uh, the fields against the Khmer Rouge. And I went out with him a couple of nights on the back of his motorbike and on the second night, there was crack, crack, crack and, and traces too close for comfort and we returned to his house that night. And the hostage negotiators told me that they'd heard chatter from the Khmer Rouge that I was, quote, number four and there was a $10,000 bounty on my head. So it was all a little odd because before that I'd been a uh, writing real estate uh, crap for a <laughs> Melbourne free magazine. So it was uh-huh. yeah, mm. jumping in the deep. That was a big leap, right? It yeah, was. that was a big leap, a big leap from being worthless to worth ten thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. My, my freelance, my, my my publishers aren't going to pay me, but the Khmer Rouge reckon I'm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all all you have to offer is your head. That's all. Yeah, that's it. Um, but it, it actually ended pretty uh, badly. Um, I had a full-on manic episode while still in Cambodia, had to go back via Hong Kong, had to be lured back basically by friends and family, got back to Sydney, tripped around like a crazy person, which I was, for five weeks and then went to Melbourne, back to Melbourne and then was put into a psychiatric ward for six weeks uh, until the depression set in, which then kind of scuttled me for about a year. So it was a full-blown bipolar episode I was very lucky to have only ever have one, which is I think true of about fifty percent of people. So, yeah, it was a strange time. But what you, triggered that? What triggered that? I thought it was the actual stress of uh, being in, in this incredibly hairy situation. At the time in Cambodia, I wasn't particularly worried. I should have been because you know obviously of what I've just told you. But there were a lot of other things as well. You know, seeing dead bodies, uh, people who'd been shot, seeing people who'd been had lost legs from mines, gangrene, all sorts of really gnarly stuff. Um, I thought it was that. And also, you know, I was smoking weed. I'd been using speed when I was back in Sydney. So I thought maybe it was also, you know, some sort of drug-related thing. Mm. Uh, and as it turned out, um, I, I'm adopted. And two years ago, I found my biological family. And I have two identical twin full brothers, one of whom wow. is bipolar. So who knows? I, I, I'm thinking it's more likely to be genetic right. than anything. Right. But yeah, in any event, I was very fortunate. Um, you know, I was crazy in terms of, you know, conspiracy theories, delusions, all sorts of stuff. And also, you know, what I still to this day consider to be amazing insights. Um, but, yeah, I was a real pain in the ass, you know, just talking nonstop and being abusive and stuff like that. 
Mm. I was very fortunate in the fact that, you know, while my friends got very fed up with me, I didn't lose any friends out of the experience. Although my career took a bit of a, a detour at that point because I had planned to go to, you know, London and well, Asia, Hong Kong and work as a sub-editor and eventually go to London. None of that happened. So, And now here's a word from our sponsor. Hi, it's Gino from Bondi Broker. In today's changing times, the importance of health and financial security has never been more important. At Bondi Broker, we work with you to improve your financial security by offering free financial health checks, assisting in reducing your debt, and gain competitive rates to improve your cash flow. Bondi Broker gets you in the best financial health so you can focus on what matters most. Visit our website today for your free consultation at bondibroker.com.au. It was a bit of a hiccup. So when you uh, got through all that, which is pretty horrendous, just listening to it, um, what was next? What happened? Um, well, I was on antidepressants for a couple of years and kind of slowly weaned myself off them with a, an eye to, wow, if this ever happens again, I need to have the insight to get back on the meds. Yep. Fortunately, that worked out. I went back to writing in uh, Sydney, working for trade magazines and then things like the City and Sydney Weekly and eventually Who Weekly. Mm-hmm. Got a job with magazines, um, working on FHM, that great literary journal. That oh, fantastic. Month, discerning Gentleman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then moved on to Empire Magazine, Film Magazine, which I've always been a movie nut. Um, when I was 16, I had a fanzine about movies. Um, so working for Empire was a dream job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked for them for close to a decade. Um, in a full-time capacity. So, you know, basically watching movies, interviewing filmmakers. Yeah, it was great. Hence hence the references to Empire Magazine on your on your website. Did you get to meet any of the uh, big stars that you, oh, yeah, you know? Yeah. Heaps. Yeah. Tell us tell us one of your um, more, more memorable stories. Um, it was an interesting thing to watch the evolution of stardom. I interviewed Matt Damon. Matt Damon! Um, <laughs> yes. I, I, I see him here. He's looking the, very young, by the way. <laughs> yeah, at the start of the uh, when he was out here promoting the first Bourne film, Jason Bourne film. So that was, I think, two thousand two. So I met him down at uh, hotel at the Rocks, and we sat in this sort of darkened room, smoked cigarettes, and drank coffee, and talked for twenty minutes. And he was great. He was really down to earth, very cool guy. You know, the sort of persona you get from the media is what he appeared to be. But then by the time Born the Third was released, he was in Australia, I think this is now 2007, I was at that point also a co-host of SBS's The Movie Show mm-hmm. and I was ushered into one of those junkets whereby there's, you know, two camera crews, one on you, one on the star, two soundies, makeup artists, publicist, uh, his publicist, etc. and I had six minutes. Right. So it was just, you know, that bang, bang, bang. He was, just, you know, as affable as ever, but it wasn't that kind of, hey, man, let's just sit down and, and chat. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, he was, he was, he was great. Um, you know, other people, I met sort of Tarantino a couple of times, um, a lot of Australian actors, a lot of, a lot of people who have passed away actually either in person or on the phone, um, like Brittany Murphy, um, mm. Heath Ledger, Philip Seymour Hoffman. It's kind of weird to have, you know, interviewed these people and then learn of their passing. It wasn't the one that really, uh, you know, I, the one that was sort of really the most striking though came um, 
just towards the end of Empire. I think I actually might have already left. I, I was doing a show for Showtime mm. called The um, Movie Club and because Showtime was um, going to be screening Robin Williams' stand-up special, Weapons of Mass Destruction, we got access to him for 45 minutes. Me and a friend of mine, Chris Murray, who sadly passed away a couple of years ago, who was the editor of Empire at one stage, founding editor. So Chris and I, um, we went and saw Robin Williams' show the night before at the Entertainment Centre and then met him at the Entertainment Centre sort of backstage. And we had like 45 minutes you know, of chatting, I guess, and another sort of 15 minutes of just hanging around. And um, Chris and I had actually worked out that, you know, Robin Williams is great interview talent, but whenever you see him do an interview, it's always someone's feeding him a line and off he goes and he's doing his bits and his characters and his voices and crazy times. So we structured the questions and the interview to stop him from doing that as much as possible. And what we ended up with was an interview, which is, I think, pretty insightful. Um, it's on YouTube. It goes for about, I think the, it's unedited on YouTube. It goes for about 35 minutes. And it was sort of this more, it was sort of a, a softer, gentler, uh, more reflective side of, of the man. I mean, it didn't, you know, presage anything that came a few years later when he when he died, but it mm. was just a, a really sort of a lovely meeting, I guess. And I was interested in a um, an old comedian called Mort Saal, who uh, this guy goes back, he, he, he started stand-up comedy in America in 1953 and he also worked for the Kennedy White House. So this is how old this guy is. And this guy, Mort Saal, is still going. Um, anyway, no. he lives in, uh, he lived in Mill Valley across the bay from San Francisco and he was a good friend of Robin Williams. And I mentioned Mort to Robin and said, I'm really keen to interview him and he set it up. So like... A few months later, I went to San Francisco. I went and I had lunch with Mort Saal and did a big piece on him for, for Men's Style magazine. And that was amazing, talking to this guy who, speaking of conspiracy theories, quit stand-up comedy in 1963 to spend the next decade investigating what he believed was the conspiracy to kill Kennedy. And he, like, was part of the Warren Commission and everything. Amazing guy. Uh, but that came through the Robin Williams generosity. So that was a wow. that was one that was one of my sort of favourite sort of you know meeting of with celebrities. He's a um, he has a character filled face, doesn't he? Who's that? Mort Saal. He certainly does. <clears throat> he must be like, I think he was about eighty six then, and that was ten years ago. So, but as far as I know, he's still doing stand up at a theatre called the Throckmorton in Mill Valley, which is where I saw him do his act. Wow. He was the first political comedian. He was sort of like, you know, the daily show of the 50s. Uh, well, let's, let, that's amazing. I mean, they're, they're, all the, they're all the fond memories. What about a dickhead moment? <laughs> it's happening oh, right now, George. Yeah. <laughs> you and I. <laughs> oh, Where <where> it? <laughs> Rutger Hauer. I mean, I love Blade Runner and I thought Rutger Hauer was great in it. And when they released, you know, 78 disc directors directors redirected oh, ultimate ultimate yeah. cut they brought him out and um i had to do this interview with him and we were on a, a, a tight schedule and he was in the other room of the hotel just in there it just wasn't coming out and then he came out and was incredibly rude and i was like dude 
you're lucky anyone cares to be for the first mm. thing. We're talking about a movie that was released 30 plus years ago or 35 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was just so, it was crazy. He was really, really rude. I also had an interview with Simon Le Bon of Duran Duran. He was I, rude. I asked him about girls on film because, you know, I was working for FHM at the time and that's what readers wanted to know about the film clip. And he got really, really angry. And said, Why? If, if we're going to talk about this, I'm just going to hang up. And I was like, well, man, you made it. People are interested. And he thought well, he dead in and continued. But you know, touched by, the nerve. Yeah, I know. By and large, I mean, celebrities are, when you, I don't really interview any anymore, which is fine. But they typically, especially, the, you've probably heard this before, but the more famous they are, the better behaved they are. You know, they know it's part of the job. So. Yeah, well, it's, didn't it's have too many dickhead moments. It's, it's funny, Simon Le Bon was, uh, we, we were recording an album at 301 EMI and they were yeah. recording their album there and he was a dickhead, seriously. Yeah. The rest of the band were fine, but he was just a dickhead. Yeah. No? Well, tell us the story then, Brent. <laughs> Come on. Oh, he was just one of those guys, you know, that out the front of the, the first time we rolled in there, um, there was like hundreds of girls at the front of 301 and we thought, hey, hey, they're, hey. All, they're here for the they're all-nighters. They're for you. <laughs> <laughs> and they just parted when we walked through. <laughs> of course, uh, all-nighters who? <laughs> but he turned up in his black limo and got out and, you know, the rest of the band got out and signed autographs and he just, basically barged his way through and ignored everybody. And yeah. I thought that set the tone for the next four weeks of us sitting in the in the green room in between takes um, with him, you know, ignoring everybody, basically. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad it wasn't just me then. Yeah, he, he was a bit of a dick. Yeah, he was. <laughs> so, so, Michael, you, you um, when did your passion for uh, writing uh, a book, well, I'm assuming you only wrote one book, yes, and that's on the Australia's uh, Forgotten, Forgotten, no, uh, you know, Hollywood. No, that was the twelfth book. Wow, Michael. So you're talking about? Oh, so yes, of course. The last girl, the last shot, the last place. Mm-hmm. You, you, the last, the last interview with quite a number of people who died. With on you, <laughs> you know, the last you, interview with you, you George. Do, do you not? Do we not? Do we not? Um, do, I, I, I sense there's there's a theme here. That you put put a hex on, you know, <laughs> Rutger Hauer. That was the end of his career. Come on, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. He kept he kept going for quite some time. Poor old oh, Brittany Murphy. Poor old Brittany Murphy didn't know. That was that was really sad. That because she actually had said to me during the interview that she had a bad heart. She could never take drugs. So when she suddenly died and everyone was like, she had a drug overdose. I'm like, well, that's doesn't sound like it's true because of that reason. But um, so I started writing when I was as about five, six, I was writing little illustrated picture books. One of them was about a, sh- a warship being attacked by sharks, which I still hope to see made by Michael Bay one day. I think it'd be pretty pretty awesome. And, I, I mean, it was one of the only things I was really good at at school was writing. So yeah. I was right into creative writing. I wanted to write novels, then realised that, you know, I should probably become a journalist so I could actually support myself. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a smart that's move, big, that was. That's where the big money is. Um, <laughs> and then I wanted to write, I wrote screenplays for a while with not a lot of success. I had a couple of things. I had one thing made and did a bit of work then later on for, for TV. But, um, yeah, I've always liked writing. I like finding 
I like telling myself the stories, I guess, finding the stories and telling them to myself in the way I'd like to read them as a reader. Um, and that's what Forgotten Australia is about, like almost all of them and most of Australia on this day are things that at the outset I know nothing about. So I'm actually in the process of discovering it, which is why it's so fascinating because, you know, as much as I love binge-watching television, actually tracing somebody's life through newspapers and records and then finding out, holy shit, they also did this is, you know, just uh, really exciting. I did one recently about um, the Forgotten Australia about a footy player in New South Wales in the 50s who was poisoned by his mother-in-law who he was stooping. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was a big case. Oh, I shouldn't laugh about that. It's <laughs> a, a tragedy. Huge, a huge, it was actually, it was, it was tragic because the woman, the mother-in-law ended up killing herself out of, I guess, out of shame. Um, his career was ruined. His marriage was ruined. Um, his health was very bad. Well, not he's, He never fully recovered after the poisoning. The thing was that this was one of a spate of poisonings all carried out with the same rat, same brand of rat poison in the late 40s and early 50s. Some of that's known. His story, bizarrely, has been largely untold until I did the podcast. But in doing the podcast, what I found was that his father was like at Gallipoli and his uncle was, you know, in the war and his brothers were in the war. So it was this extra layer that kind of explained to some extent why this young guy who'd been too young to fight in World War II mm. would be so keen to be an Australian representative football player and, you know, fly, wear the uniform and fly the flag for Australia like his, you know, father, mm. uncle, brothers, etc. had. So, yeah, it's just interesting finding these, you know, layers and, and then telling the story to myself and then to listeners. So your uh, your story, um, yep. you found out that you were adopted. How did that pan out? Like, <laughs> where are you at with? Like, do you, are you in contact with you? Yeah. Oh yeah, I went over and had lunch the other uh, last weekend. Um, I won't. Yeah. Okay. So mm. I wrote a trilogy, as you know, the last girl, last shot, last place. It's a post-apocalyptic story set in Australia in the near future. Short story is that, you know, there's a telepathic outbreak in which everybody can suddenly hear what everybody else is thinking. It goes extremely badly. Those who survive the chaos of the first 24 hours, most of them become catatonic and then just die because they starve to death. So it's, you know, it's, it's cheery. Mm, um, yeah. There's a very small population of survivors, basically, you know, goodies and baddies. By the third book, um, Australia's on fire with, you know, uncontrolled bushfires. The baddies are closing in on the goodies who have holed up in Port Macquarie. And the goodies decide <laughs> their, <buggers>. only, <laughs> their only escape, the only place that's likely to be safe that they can reach is Lord Howe Island. So off they go at the end of the last place. Spoiler alert, mm. listeners can still buy the books. They're very good. Um, so I wrote those in 2011 through 2013, 14. I think the last place was published 2015. Anyway, I'd always known I was adopted um, and I knew my mother's name and I knew my birth name and I won't go into the specifics, but the birth name wasn't easily trackable because there was a middle name, which, which I thought, what well, there was what I thought was, a, I thought it was a double-barrelled surname. Turns out that the middle name, my original middle name, wasn't a double-barrelled surname. It was just a name that was given to all the children. Anyway, 
researching the Mary Maguire Australia's Sweetheart book, I got good at all the sort of archival research and stuff and thought, oh, I should give myself another, I should give myself another go in terms of researching. Mm-hmm. I came up with a hit, one hit. I emailed that person's uh, colleagues and said, hey, this is me. I think I might be related. I got an email a week later and then I kind of forgot about it because I you know, thought it was a long shot. I got a week, an email a week later from a, a chap who said, I think we might be related. I feel strongly we're related. Give us a call if you like. I did. I said, what can you tell me? He said, I'm your brother. Not just my brother, but my full brother and he has an identical twin. So I have two younger brothers. And then I learned that mum, biological mum, still alive. And my family goes back 180 years and we're the founders of Lord Howe Island. Holy shit. So I'd written this book where the second half of it is all about getting to Lord Howe Island before I knew that I am a Lord sixth generation Lord Howe Islander. So anyway, um, upshot it. And bizarrely, the the brother I spoke to, I'd worked with his wife for six months, my sister-in-law, I'd worked with her for six months on MasterChef a few years earlier. So we'd been in each other's orbit every day. We went to Italy together um, without knowing that she was married to my brother. So stranger than fiction, um, upshot being we've been to Lord Howe Island, visited, love mum, she's great, met my uncles who are also great. Because we go, the family goes back so far, prior to this, my only blood relative that I knew was my daughter, I'm now related to two-thirds of Lord Howe Island's population. Wow, wow. So, yeah. when, when, when will you acquire the keys to the island? <laughs> Aren't you uh, as, soon as, the Illuminati, as soon as the Illuminati give the nod. <laughs> the double That's son of Sam's <laughs> grandson. Wow. <laughs> a beautiful That's a hell of a place. story. You can actually hear um, the family background in episode six of Forgotten Australia. It's about uh, Australia's forgotten Titanic hero because I also learned that my great-great-uncle was the bosun of the Titanic and he went down with the ship and made uh, great efforts to save as many people as he could knowing he wasn't going to make it. Um, He was then unfairly pilloried by James Cameron in a documentary about six years ago and I in- investigated the story, went back to the original inquiries and newspaper clippings and all the rest of it, and he was pretty much stitched up by James Cameron and uh, he was actually a hero who gave his life. So, yeah. Sorry, why would uh, James, why in your opinion would James Cameron have pilloried uh, the bosun who, you know, he's not um, the major figure on, on a ship? What uh, he, he, his role at that point, the bosun's role is, to take, he's in charge of deck operations, which include includes lifeboats. So he was pretty vital. Um, the story is that the guy, say the guy who survived, the chief officer, the the senior ranking officer who survived, and whose story became the official story, remembering that he was covering his ass and covering the yeah. of the White Star Line, yeah. was that. During the sinking, he sent my ancestor and a group of men down below to open doors, uh, open a door, and that door was going to be used by passengers to jump into half-filled lifeboats. Mm-hmm. Uh, he sent Thomas, he sent Albert Nichols down with his crew and never saw them again. And that was how he then also explained that the lifeboats were half full and that they were short, short man, they were they were short-staffed in terms of getting lifeboats away quickly. So it was a convenient uh, 
set of arrangements, a convenient explanation as to what happened. Thing is, there were credible reports of Albert Nichols on deck after that, actually getting people into lifeboats. So it seems that it was not true. Um, when the Titanic was discovered, if you remember the picture of it on the bottom of the Atlantic, you can see one open door. Mm-hmm. That's the door that supposedly my ancestor opened, which then allowed, allowed accelerated the flooding of the ship. Um, there's n- very little evidence to suggest that actually happened. Uh, for instance, no passenger in a lifeboat reported seeing an open door through which light would have been shining. Anyway, without getting into the weeds, mm. um, James Cameron accepted that the door had been opened and that this corridor had been flooded, which sank the ship. I disagree. Um, I had the podcast reviewed by some experts, some international Titanic experts, and they were like, yep, we think you're right. So, you know, I guess the, the jury's out. Funny thing is, is that I actually had interviewed James Cameron about in 2009, I think it was, and God, I wish I'd known this at the time because I could have said, hey, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He has actually said uh, subsequently that, you know, he spent so much time focused on the technical details of the sinking, the hydraulics mm-hmm. and all the rest mm-hmm. of it that he really has not focused on the people. And, um, yeah, so well, maybe it'll be corrected one day. Well, Michael, with your fame and infamy, <laughs> you could go back for a part two. What do you reckon? That's it. I reckon so. Uh, look, uh, I, I am curious, though, like um, out of all your um, – out of all the episodes that you've done so far, which one has grabbed you the most, apart from the, you know, your family story about Lord Howe, which one's been the most interesting from your perspective? This is a cop-out answer, but I have to say all of them. It's like having children. Yep. Um, And I think it's a good measure in terms of the one that I'm working on at the moment is the one that, wow, this is the best one ever. And I guess that, if that is the way that I'm thinking, then that's good because it keeps me really engaged. Um, that said, some of them that really sort of popped for me are the ones that are just totally obscure. There's one about a chap called Arizona Ryan who was an American man, an American self-styled cowboy who strolled into the middle of a siege in Surrey Hills with a revolver and killed a gunman stone-cold dead after you know a siege that had stopped Sydney for like 12 hours, this Chinese fellow had gone on a kill-crazy rampage and then holed up in a house. And this self-styled cowboy just walked in and blew him away, like Dirty Harry style, and then was <laughs> hero wow. to nine, – and this is in the middle of the Spanish flu too, this is 1919 – was a hero to Sydney. And, like, you know, there was newsreel footage of it that he'd narrate and he'd, you know, dress up in his cowboy outfit. So, anyway, I did a, a deep dive on this guy back in – through American newspapers, and he was a nut job. He'd tried to kill himself. He'd tried to kill his wife. He'd been a, a cop in Los Angeles or a deputised sheriff in Los Angeles and just used to beat the fuck out of people. He was a, he was a stone-cold nut job. And, but he's also a hero. He'd saved all these people in this massive harbour explosion in San Diego. He'd been a spy in Nicaragua and in Mexico during revolutions there. Anyway, Sydney got the sequel a few months later when he was given a job at the wharves and a, he fronted a couple of uh, guys coming off a ship and they gave him a bit of lip. So he pulled out his gun and he shot one of them in the chest. The guy was saved because he had a, a book in his pocket that stopped the bullet. But then all of a sudden Sydney went, ah, Arizona Ryan's possibly not quite the hero we thought. Um, but, you know, the, the, there, was a, there was a strike at the time so the sailors went back to sea. By the time he came to trial there were no witnesses so he was acquitted 
and then he went back to America with his with his wife, and then seemed to live a good life after they had like you know twelve thousand children and died of old age in in you know the, the mid forties. So that one really I really liked because it was this incredibly cinematic story uh, that stopped Kit Sydney cold. But yeah, there's you you won't find a reference to it anywhere. So so Michael. How long does it take you to work, to work an episode? Like it must, you know, it must be a big process. Some of them um, take, I would think probably on average maybe 20 or 30 hours of research and writing for every 40 minutes, 50 minutes. Some are, some are quicker than others. I'm doing one at the moment, which I'm going to record after we, we finish today, um, about a, a kid in Grafton who killed, like really chopped up uh, this farming couple and a worker. These are people he'd known and worked for for five years and the newspapers blamed it on Deadwood Dick. Who? Deadwood, Deadwood, Dick, <laughs> Deadwood Dick was this Your brother, fictional, George. fictional cowboy. What was that? It's not my brother. George's brother. That's not my brother. That's my appendage. <laughs> <laughs> Deadwood Dick, uh, the big, big banana of the fiction. Deadwood <laughs> Dick. Deadwood Dick. Deadwood Dick was literally the first superhero. He was a, a pulp store, a, a pulp novel anti-hero created in America in 1877, and oh. he was hugely popular. But he was thought to be corrupting young minds. Like there are dozens, if not hundreds, of stories like this in the 1890s going right through to the 1940s. You know the chant of Jimmy Blacksmith? Yes. Jimmy Governor, based on the story of Jimmy Governor, who with his brother and a friend killed nine people in 1900, that was initially based, blamed, on him reading Deadwood Dick. Really? Uh, so there were, and then this guy that I'm doing a podcast about, that same year there was another kid who killed a woman in, in a Sydney hotel Again, by blamed on Deadwood Dick, and Deadwood Dick became this catch-all for um, any sort of lurid novel. It wasn't just ones featuring that character. So this other one, the kid who killed this woman in a hotel, when they actually listed the the two books that he'd been reading, mm-hmm. one was by Alexander Dumas, and the other one was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. One was a allegory about slavery, and the other one was a comic farce about the Napoleonic Wars. But the headlines were all. Deadwood Dick. So it was crazy this, like, you know, before video games, before, you know, horror movies, before comic books, Deadwood Dick was the person who was, you know, corrupting the youth. The amazing thing is, is that, you know, the generation that read them were the generation that went onto the beaches at Gallipoli and fought World War One. So, you know, it's it's just, again, completely forgotten little slab of history. Um, but I spent, I guess, maybe 40 or 50 hours Reading old newspapers, you know, researching Deadwood Dick, and and yeah, it's it's a, it's a really interesting one from the perspective of you know we're still rolling out these ideas that you know there's a magic bullet between pop culture and real life violence. Mm-hmm. The guy in Grafton, now here's a spoiler, but the guy in Grafton who chopped up the three people on the farm, when he actually was asked why he'd done it, he said because. He wanted, he'd gone there to rob them to get money so he could raise an army with a, the other members of the North New South Wales secret society who were going to start a revolution to institute a white Australia 
and kill Chinese and Aboriginal people. Right. So while the newspapers were really happy to have Deadwood Dick in the headlines, they weren't so keen to say killer wanted to start white Australian revolution. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, dear. Gee, it's good to know. Good. It's good to know we 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 do like we like to think that uh, you know the yesteryear was a a saner period for human beings, but there were butchers even back then, as there are today. That's what I think about this kid. Like he was nineteen years old, he was an oddball. Like the thing is, you know, he'd had a really terrible upbringing, so you know the, that that I think was probably the most contributing factor to his crimes. But you know, he was basically an incel. You know. He was a loner, had a rough upbringing, fantasised about, you know, he probably, he was supposedly did read Deadwood Dicks. Who knows if that's true or not? He denied it, but that's the thing. He denied that, but he admitted everything else. But, you know, he had this fantasy that he was going to have this, you know, white Australian revolution. And it's basically like, you know, the same sort of mindset that, you know, led to the Auckland massacre yeah. and various other mm. outrages in the United States. It's, it's funny to think this was, you know, happening 115 years ago. Wow. Without a doubt. So, uh, Michael, what's your next big project after this? Um, the podcast pretty much are keeping me on my toes continually. I've got an idea for a novel um, based on a – I did a 14-part series called Sydney's Red Year about 19 – about a series of really violent crimes in Sydney the same year that the Harbour Bridge was opened. And I think there's probably something in, in a novel set at that point, but I'm not sure. Um, I've had a screenplay that I wrote bizarrely 15 years ago option, so um, I'm hoping that gets made. Mm. Um, and I've got veggies in the veggie garden. And I'm hoping they'll they'll grow. The radishes, <laughs> the radishes will become plump. That's, <laughs> and that's worry, not rats, any sort of innuendo. The rats and the possums <laughs> will get to them. <laughs> so, Michael, we, uh, we we like to finish the episode with a song, and I, I noticed that you picked a song that, uh, you know, only – uh, somebody that is into indie music or alternate uh, music would would probably get because usually people will pick you know Celine Dion or something like that. But uh, the heebie-jeebies are, are, are pretty obscure. <laughs> the heebie-jeebies. Are you? Are you really? Neil do you know, who, do you know who they are, George? Mate, that's an obscure reference to the dark past. You know, <laughs> seriously. Yeah. What I love about the heebie-jeebies, particularly this song, is I think I heard it for the first time in 1980. I believe I literally pissed myself laughing. <laughs> I had no idea who Neil Young was, who Bob Dylan was, <laughs> who Leonard Cohen was. So I didn't really get the actual satire or the parody <laughs> except for the fact that it was just really piss funny as it was. And <laughs> I had to listen to it just before we started talking and I still laughed at how awesomely ridiculous it is, but how dead on it is in terms of a parody of those, you know, massive 1970s, 1980s style concerts, you know, for charities and, and so forth. So, yeah, it's just a funny song. That's great. <laughs> so uh, if people want to get in contact, they can just look you up with Forgotten Australia and send you rude emails if they like, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> About send me photos of your big banana. No, don't. <laughs> <laughs> or your Deadwood Dick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, people can, people can follow, you know, the latest latest episodes at Facebook, Forgotten Oz Podcast, OZ. Um, yeah, and, yeah, I post one one post a day for Australia on this day and, you know, 
subscribe and share and like, that'd be great. Yeah, look, Michael, I've got to say that I, I love your podcast. I really so do. I. And I love, your, I love your midnight FM DJ voice. Yeah. It's, uh, it's really, it's really. Um, Go on, George, do yours. Really sexy. Oh, you already are, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> that's the best uh, yeah, you can get from George. Can do. <laughs> yeah, that's I'm George. not sure if my midnight DJ voice will come through on Zoom. But, uh. <laughs> well, well done, Michael. I, I, I'm Thanks, Michael. By your episodes because it's obvious that you're a, a, a damn sight more professional than Brett and myself. <laughs> <laughs> and I love your Stanley Kubrick style room there, George. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to. Sorry, go. Hal. I can't just, do that. I'm just going to. Go butcher a couple of people now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's very American psycho, actually. <laughs> you like Huey Lewis in the Huey Lewis in the news? Yeah. yeah. But George is George is very American psycho. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. Thanks for the chat. Thanks, Thanks Brett. Thanks, George. Good luck, Thanks, Michael. Thank, Take care. Yeah. Thanks, Take care. mate. Bye, bye. Okay. Okay. Right now. Uh, it's uh, time for the last number of the evening. Right. It's been a terrific evening, isn't it? Great. Okay, so will you welcome back on stage, please, uh, Mr. Neil Dunn and Mr. Bob Bellin. Yeah! I saw the bird of peace the other day. Flying through the sky Pursued by people who hate him They took their guns and shot him down I found the bird of peace on the ground And ate him
supply of love, O bird of peace. You're the razor. Okay, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Leonard Cohen. Yeah. Right now, George Harrison. Right now, it's time to welcome old Grey Eyes himself, Mr. Frank Sumatra! Oh, butterfly of love, my kind of bird, come and fly with me, oh, butterfly Mr. Frank Sumatra. But now, making his own way towards the microphone is Mr. Dean Martian. Dean Martian, ladies and gentlemen, let's hear it. Open up the stage. And now, finally, the reason we're all here, the people you've been praying for, would you welcome, please, Norris Davin and Gary Cripp, yes, the sensational, three and only, TBGB! <laughs> 